Welcome to WLRN Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. What are you? The writer Jonathan Escoffrey wrestled with that question. What are you? To explore it, he drew from personal experience to write the new book, If I Survive You, which was long listed for a National Book Award, one of the highest honors for a writer, especially for a first-time author. His book of interconnected fictional stories draws on his real experience of a Jamaican family fleeing political oppression and immigrating to Miami. And here, that family confronts the issues that Miami wrestles with. Issues of race, of class, of crushing economic disparity. And how they survive all these things to figure out where they fit in. Meanwhile, as the main character Trelawney tells it, people listen to their accents, look at their color of their skin, and keep asking them, what are you? Escoffrey writes about Miami the, the way only an insider can. He name-checks Trick Daddy, the rapper. He describes growing up near the stench of Mount Trashmore. He recalls a Cutler Ridge overrun with skittering crabs. It's not the Miami of rich housewives and reality TV. It's just real Miami. So we'll spend the next hour with Jonathan, talking with him about the city that helped shape him. Uh, one of Miami's bright new voices. Jonathan, welcome to Sundial. Hey, Carlos. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, because really, one of the things that that I really wanted to talk to you about is is how unafraid you are in this book, right? Uh, what I love is how very Miami it is. Uh, there's details. There's little details you write about, you know, the random black millipedes that found their way into our houses. Uh, obviously, the Trick Daddy reference. Uh, you have that image of the that poster of the Jamaican woman that's in all the places, who's actually Trini, I found out in your book. Um, <laughs> right. I, and I love that. Like, why was it important to you to, to really get into all those little details? Yeah, I think, you know, uh, I'm glad you brought up the poster because it's, it's uh, a kind of example of the way we sometimes look at the world and think that we know it and know, you know, all of its contours and inner workings. And, you know, sometimes we really don't. And so any opportunity I had to kind of bring this uh, insider kind of insight, Miami insight, Caribbean insight, Jamaican American insight, uh, to the page, I, I thought that was a real opportunity to um, refocus, uh, at least, or, or put my worldview on, on the page, at least, and um, give that opportunity for people to maybe know the world I'm coming out of a little bit better, more clear. And you know what? And I, what I loved is that I found myself putting the book down for a second and going over to Google and just being like, you know, Trini poster model, you know, uh, Jamaican and like looking that up. And, and I've, I did the same thing with like, um, I was reading, uh, uh, the overstory where he talks about the American chestnut tree that had disappeared. And I found myself doing the same thing. And I feel like that was such an interesting thing, you know, to be able to, to write something that will get even locals, like kind of scrambling for Google, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think as, a when you're a younger writer, younger in your, your practice, I mean, mm -hmm. um, oftentimes you feel the pressure to somehow write in a way that is less specific and more, um, you, you write to this kind of imagined everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think you get to a point where you realize you have to bring it back to the specific and bring it back to um, these these kinds of details through which the reader can experience the world that you're creating for them, whether that's the world that reflects your personal experiences and the you know the the world as it was uh, that you grew up in, or or some other imagined world. But I found you know the the more specific and detailed I got, 
uh, the more energy I found in the in the writing and in the storytelling. And there is this question, right? There's this moment where you are writing, I'm sure, and you ask, are my experiences worthy? I remember you were interviewed somewhere and, and where you said that where you have to kind of convince yourself or you realize like, hey, my life experience is quote unquote worthy to write about and even, you know, getting into those little details. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, part of figuring out whether or not, well, first of all, your, your stories and your lived experience, they're, they're always worthy of, of being captured. Amen. Um, I, I think for me specifically, I had a really difficult time imagining a narrator like my main character, Chalani, who is trying to figure out who he is in the world, especially as he's being pushed and pulled in different directions mm -hmm. and people are telling him what he is or isn't <laughs> kind of at rapid pace. Right. And, um, you know, I, I, I just didn't find it easy to imagine. I, I don't think I'd really read um, a, a narrator like that, or at least one that I could recall. And, and, um, and, and that was one of the most difficult things in trying to write, if I survive you trying to figure out, well, you know, who, whose story is this really going to be? And, and it wasn't until I, I kind of um, got over that fear and that anxiety about whether or not the larger reading world has any kind of interest in, in reading about a character like Chavlani that I was able to um, find a lot of uh, energy in, in the prose and in the, the voice and um, that problem for me as the author of how to create a character like that in a way it became Chavlani's problem. How do you uh, hmm. figure out who you are um, when people are kind of, you know, telling you a lot of contradictory things about yourself. And and Trelawney does this interesting thing, right? Where he like, he starts listening to different kinds of music and I could almost put myself, and, and I can imagine you putting yourself, uh, putting you in that place where you're listening to kind of different music and be like, am I a rap guy? Am I like a heavy metal guy? Am I an, uh, you know, mm -hmm. alt music guy? Like, was did mm -hmm. that reflect a little bit about your experience too? Absolutely. And, especially I, in I Miami, right? In yeah, especially in Miami and and growing up in the 80s, 90s, I remember I was a big fan. I mean, largely I was listening, especially when you're a kid and you have no money and you can't really, you know, drive yourself to a, you know, back then we had these music stores that you would drive to and, and buy cassette tapes and where did you Where did you go? Peaches, Specs? What was your spot? Specs. I was a Specs guy. Oh, you know by it. The time I, yeah. <laughs> by the time I had like part-time jobs that I could spend a little money. But before that, I was a radio guy. And, you know, I remember having my first little, um, I guess, boombox, miniature boombox, where I could actually record music off of the radio. And, you know, that was where I found my music. And I remember in elementary school. Wait, like, can, um, we, can, we throw, big... can we throw it back to the kids here for a second? Like you had a boombox with a tape cassette <laughs> in it and you'd wait for the rate for the song to come on the radio. And like you're you're like eager with the DJ, like, please stop talking so I can start recording so I can have this Absolutely. song. <laughs> you had to keep two fingers on the two different buttons and you had to time it perfectly or else you're going to have to wait a whole other hour for your song to hopefully play again. <laughs> yeah. Magical times, magical times. <laughs> you, you were mentioning elementary school, something that happened musically related. To yeah. Well, I, I was just, I was really into, um, like a lot of rock music, like a uh, rock or uh, whatever you call 
Bon Jovi, John Bon Jovi. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, I love it. I, you know, and that was like my favorite kind of music. And then I remember turning up to school one day and somebody saying, there was this big conversation about, and, and I hope I'm getting the terminology right. I didn't quite put this in the book, but it was like, are you a, like, are you a bass head or are you like a, I forget what a metal head or whatever was metal head or something like that. And you had to be one or the other. And it, it seemed to be among the first times where people were being split into these different groups, where it's like, you absolutely could not be both. And that was the start of like this split of, well, if you've, now that you've chosen a base head, <laughs> how are you going to be, uh, how are you going to address and how is that all going to reflect in this ide identity that you're starting to build? But there was definitely uh, a kind of racial component that was quietly built into that. And then uh, as time went on, less quietly built into that to the point where it's like, oh, this has already been chosen for you because you are, uh you, your skin is brown and so and and it's brown enough that we believe you must be on this side of the line so not not only do you have to choose one side but the side is also kind of predetermined for you based on how you present racially yeah uh, that's such a teenage experience in miami I had the same thing, like I was a Def Leppard guy. And like I remember playing music at a buddy's house and he's like, Oh my god, that's hurting my ears. And it's like he was in the he was in the Miami bass, you know? Which is which yeah. is such a Miami thing, you know. Uh I, I'm thinking of Absolutely. Trina Trick Daddy, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh we <laughs> and, and and I I don't think I was ever really on one side of the line. I definitely got pushed into one side of the line. So by middle school I was it was like hip hop or nothing. <laughs> but um <laughs> But, uh, you know, before that, I was, you know, I was mixing up my Bon Jovi with my my two live crew, <laughs> Uncle Luke. <laughs> yeah, um, we got that... we got we got a genuflect at the altar of Uncle Luke if you're down here, I guess, in some way. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I, I ran into some I didn't run into, but I met up with some cousins in Canada who told me that I actually scarred them for life by um introducing them to two live crew they had never heard such uh profane, profane <laughs> lyrics <laughs> which you know oops <laughs> their parents but, uh, will never you know, forgive you that is so funny never never and those were the days you know where radio like depending on the time of day um like they would play some pretty explicit lyrics and i think there the censorship was kind of still figuring itself out so on one hand they were trying to throw them in jail but on the other hand sometimes when the records were played it was very <laughs> it was very explicit for a, a young kid you know i'm thinking you know an 8 year old 9 year old to be uh, bopping along to i definitely didn't necessarily always understand what i was listening to yeah, no, I. It's like we can't even say like the like the non radio friendly titles of some of those songs. Like, <laughs> I know, right. I know the <laughs> one you're thinking about. I know, I, I know that you know what I'm thinking about. But right, so right. it's funny because you identify so much with Miami in this book. It feels like, um, do you? I know you're you're in or in Oakland right now. Do you still do you still identify with Miami? Did you? Was it a period for you, or was it? Is it like who you are? I think it's definitely who I am. You know, I, I think the only question I may, the only question I may have is, is it who I'm always going to be? Uh, my family is still down there largely. And, you know, I visit at least once a year, sometimes several times a year. I've been moving around the country ever since I left Miami in 2011. Wow. And I've been moving around, uh, I've moved cities every two or three years. Um, 
And so there's no city in the world that I know like Miami. Uh, I love California, I will tell you that. And um, I was down in Southern California before moving up to Oakland to uh, do what I've been doing, which is largely chasing residencies, writing fellowships, uh, graduate program in creative writing. And, um, you know, most of that comes along with some kind of paycheck. And so I've been trying to support myself as a writer and as an artist, uh, but, you know, so none of those two years or three years can really compare to my almost 30 years in Miami. Right. Right but, now you're, right um, you're in the hustle. Yeah. You're, ch you're, you're trying to get paid so you can write more books, which, which is, that's the, exactly, that's the hustle, man. That's the hustle. Sometimes I talk to my, my mentees, my students that I teach and <laughs> sometimes they hear my story and they're inspired. And then sometimes they hear my story and they're like, wow, that I'm tired just listening to you <laughs> in terms of all of those moves. And, wow. you know, it's, it's a marathon. It is. Well, we'll take us through some of the highlights. I mean, just to give folks uh, a background on you, um, uh, tell us a little bit about your, your, how your parents and your family got to Miami. Yeah. So my, my parents moved to Miami in, uh, well, first I should say my parents left Jamaica. They left Kingston in 1979 and, um, moved to Houston, Texas, which is actually where I was born. Okay. And um, I I still have some family in Houston. Shout out to Houston. All right. I was going to say, are you, uh, like, are you like Vanilla Ice who like, he says he's from Miami, but he's actually from Texas? <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like people can only digest like so much information. So it's one of those things where it, it doesn't quite make it into the bio because it's like, where does the Houston part fit in? But I only live there... Um, maybe two, three years. So I was a, you know, I was a baby in Houston, but, um, you know, not long enough to get an accent. Say that again. Not long enough to have an accent. <laughs> oh, not, a, not long enough to have an accent. Not I that do remember, accent. Right. Um, not that accent. Right. Um, uh, I have family photos somewhere in an album, probably in my mother's closet or something with me in, uh, these little cowboy boots, <laughs> which is the most Texan thing I, I, I ever did. I think, um, but uh, yeah, please, they please tweet that. Miami. Please tweet that at some point. We got to see it. Right. <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll check in for that. But um, yeah, I moved to, to Miami and that's really where I, I grew up from two, three years old. And um, uh, we, you know, we bounced around with family for a little bit and then settled in Cut what was then Cutler Ridge. Um, <laughs> uh, most people who grew up in Cutler Ridge when it was called Cutler Ridge, still kind of call it Cutler Ridge rather than Cutler Bay. But That's um, right. That's I, right. I, you know, I, it was a, it was kind of a magical area because my um, neighborhood was kind of like halfway developed. And so we had this brand new constructed townhouse, but behind the townhouse was, it, it was acres and acres of land that, you know, my young brain didn't realize it was, was also going to be developed with lots and lots of houses. But I think at some point, um, and I, I think there was like a housing um, recession of, of some kind in, uh, at least in the area in the 80s that actually affected the, the uh, development of this community, which meant it actually didn't get developed. <laughs> and so it felt very rural. Um, and we would have, you know, my, my older brother and I would go out and explore and there'd be all these uh, wonderful 
this wonderful wildlife, much of which appears in the book, the crabs that appear in the book, is, that's real. The, the, the nighthawks that would kind of nest in the grounds that would actually attack us when we got too near to them. <laughs> um, it was, it was, it was a lovely time because that's, you know, when you're, you're a kid and, and, you know, I, I know we, we kind of talk about this a lot, but I do feel for those children who, don't have that experience of just being able to get out and explore on their own and, and have to kind of be um, having the the helicopter parent experience. Um, right. Get a, get a little dirty, get in a little bit of danger, right? Absolutely. We'd, we'd find plywood that was abandoned and we'd build ramps and we, we would definitely put ourselves in a little bit of danger, if not a lot, but you know, that's, that's the stuff of life. And, um, Anyway, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I I did uh, we we it was happy times largely up until Hurricane Andrew hit and destroyed the house, did a lot of damage to the neighborhood, and, and you know obviously expand that out to a lot of damage to South Florida and to and to um, pe- and to people, which which you which you mentioned and and actually I um. I want to take a little break here and then come back and kind of explore that issue. Uh, we're talking with Jonathan Escoffrey about his new book, If I Survive You. Uh, if you missed any part of this conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our podcast. Uh, we'll be right back with him. Back on Sundial, I'm Carlos Frias. We're speaking with author Jonathan Escoffrey about his debut story collection, If I Survive You. Jonathan, before I butchered your name, and uh, uh, but after we went to break, we were talking about uh, Hurricane Andrew um, and how that obviously broke houses, but also broke people, and including some of the characters uh, in your book. Um, but but I've heard you. Uh, quoted about about that time where it forced you to move a little bit and wondering like what was your experience with Hurricane Andrew and how did it how did it impact you so deeply that you know you end up writing about it yeah uh, I, I just think of it as the event that kind of ended my childhood in a way and um wow. the whatever was left of my childhood innocence I, I feel like it was blown away in that storm um uh, I have talked a lot about it and I, you know, it's, it's something that I, I have to also um, consider that it also arrived around the time that my parents' marriage was ending. And <laughs> there were, there were certainly signs of it. And I think my brother and I were, were warned of it. The, the word that was used was separation, mm. but um her, my my parents were still living together when this hurricane hit and then our house is destroyed we had to move to Miramar um uh we found ourselves in in new schools me in particular i remember um they had a day i think they were uh Broward County was kind of sorting out all of these transplants who were moving north from uh you know the our, our wrecked neighborhoods in Miami-Dade County mm-hmm. and uh, I, I remember my mother and I were in this auditorium and we were waiting our turn in line to go up to a table where, depending on our zip code, we were going to be told exactly what school we go to. And uh, I get to the front of the table and the, the guy who has the list, he finds our, our zip code and says, oh, you know, it's a really good thing you're here because I, I think he, you know, it's very dramatic. He says, thank God, because 
you know, you, you were between two schools, but you're going to the good one and not the really, really horrible one. Yikes. <laughs> and then he, and then he takes a moment and he's like, Hmm. And he, <laughs> you know, he double checks his lists, his list and says, Oh, actually, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no! And so this is this oh, is kind no. of my my introduction to uh, living in Miramar. And, and now that I've wow. now that I've said that, like I, I feel bad. I don't even want to say what middle school I, I wound up on. Uh, well, wound up going to because I don't want to slander them. But uh, but but you did I had a say... really. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. No, uh, well, I, I I I did have a rough time of it. Uh, my my re-entry into uh, and this is the beginning of sixth grade. I should mention, which I think, you know, that's oh, for such a lot a critical, of children such a critical exactly. time. Yeah, like almost right. the beginning of middle school, really, and and it's like you're you're learning so much about yourself. I I think I remember reading that uh, you said that uh, you were someone who loved school at that until that point that you thought school was a magical place, but the moving to Broward really kind of shook. Uh, your understanding of school and and kind of life in general, uh, what what was it about that change that was so that was so impactful? Yeah, I, I, I what I will say is that I went to a school um, called Gulfstream Elementary. I'm not sure if it's the, if it's still called that. I know the school is still there, um, and that was down in, in Cutler Ridge. Okay. Um, and and the, the teachers, they just really cared. There was just a lot of um, really wonderful programs for us. Uh, it, I was in a um, one of those little, pro it wasn't the gifted program, which I know people can be critical of the gifted program anyway, but it was one of those um, kind of accelerated programs where you got to, you know, again, this is kind of the 80s, early 90s, but right. you got to play with the, um, you got to work on uh, computers. You weren't working on computers, but you were playing on the computers and, and just do a lot of, uh, you got to do a lot of activities that made learning fun. I guess that's the, what I'm trying to say here is le learning was made fun. The people seemed to really care. Um, I had a lot of friends, <laughs> uh, but, I, but it felt like, you know, most of the kids had a lot of friends and everybody, you know, there, there, there was less of this kind of um, segregating into different groups. And uh, the school I went to, I began at, and after the hurricane in, in, in middle school, um, yeah, it was just the, the teachers didn't seem particularly friendly, uh, didn't seem particularly interested in educating. It, it felt more like uh, miniature prison in a sense. Um, wow. And, and you the, and you wrote about you wrote about definitely segregated. You wrote about how how your character, uh, how the character Trelawney, who I mean I I could see like shades of, of you in it. I, I would imagine. I know fiction is fiction and and real life is real life. But there's this thing where he leaves Miami and then when he's in Broward. The Puerto Rican kids are looking at the color of his skin and saying, wait, are you one of us? And like, you know, he's cool with the Puerto, the Puerto Rican kids are cool with him until they realize he's not Puerto Rican. And then they hate him. And and I wonder <laughs> if you had like, can you talk about that little difference? If people don't understand that 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 dividing line between Dan Broward. I mean, now it's a little bit better, but I feel like especially back in the day, it was really like being in a different a whole different world. How did you experience that? Yeah, Um that was very much my experience. What what I wrote in the book was very much my, my experience in that uh -huh. that uh, that portion. I, I should say uh, I showed up. I, I I was you know I won't I won't I won't say anyone threw any kind of parade for me to come join their their clique. But I, I was um, 
when I was eventually embraced it, it was by the Puerto Rican kids. And I, I, it just didn't really dawn on me that there would be any kind of reason why or any kind of like external factors or, or my presentation would, would allow me to join the group. It didn't, it didn't seem like that because that's not what anyone was immediately saying. But what did become apparent was that this group of friends did not like these other groups. Um, and, and the main group I'm thinking of turned out to be the Jamaican kids. Oh, and no. <laughs> and you know and, and at this point in my you know I, I i obviously always knew i had jamaican parents uh, my family was jamaican but i wasn't necessarily somebody who was invested in my cultural heritage in any way i just thought of myself as an american kid um but you know time goes on just a little bit of time goes on and they did realize because i didn't speak spanish they started to ask questions as to why and what you know what made my parents decide to not teach me spanish oh that's and so funny i had to but papo, had how come to you don't talk spanish <laughs> basically basically and um and there were definitely friends in, there were there were people in this friends group who were were warmer towards me and and others who were a little colder towards me in the first place but um i remember my my closest friend in the group i, I really thought this this kind of thing wasn't going to matter to him <laughs> and you know once i revealed i was jamaican i was out of that group so quickly wow. i was i was i was invited to leave on the spot wow and that's um, like we can kind of like yeah. we can kind of smirk at that now and kind of look back by that that for a kid who's trying to adjust and all of a sudden you you're resetting at zero you know i can see how that led to this question of quote what are you which is um which is seminal to the the first story in your collection you know in flux and and i i'm curious like how did that especially now that you've traveled a bit like how does the question of race and like the the the, the yeah the idea of race how does that change how is it different in miami from what you've experienced yeah, it's it's so difficult to pin down because mm. it's, it's like a target that is always moving. And sometimes you think things have changed um, and then you realize things maybe haven't changed as much as you thought. So in Miami, my experience is that I meet some people who look like me. I identify as black. <laughs> I should put that out there. OK, um, uh, I will meet I will meet people who, who in Miami, I mean, who look you know, a, a lot like me um, in terms of, you know, same skin color, a lot of the similar uh, phenotypical traits and who will tell me that they're not black um, and who, and, 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 I've, and I, I say this, but, you know, as before I go on, I'm not, I'm, I'm someone who's just curious about this. I'm not even saying this with any kind of judgment. Yeah. Um, same hear you. I, I think that what I've kind of come away with after thinking a lot about this and writing a lot about this is that if you, I think your, your relationship with race has a lot to do with your relationship with whether or not, or to what extent you have been racialized hmm. in the environment that you're moving through and that you primarily exist in. And so you'll have people who are, and I, I you know, I, I should talk mostly about, you know, my, my own culture. So you'll have Jamaicans who look like me mm -hmm. or Jamaicans who are 
fairer or, or they're lighter skinned, they're darker skinned. It doesn't matter if, if they have spent most of their lives in Jamaica, um, they, there may be like colorism that they have to deal with or, or they may exist on either side of, of um, they may be more privileged by colorism or, or, or not. Um, but blackness as an idea, uh, as something that is, uh, is, is discriminated against might be less of a concern than things like class or religion hmm. or some other things. Um, but, you know, when you're in, when you're, when you're in the U S <laughs> you, you, and, and you and you're black, um, you you definitely feel um, that racialized experience, depending on you know depending on your community, depending on your how your family looks at things, um, depending on the shade of your skin, mm. you may feel it more or less. Um, but in, in 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 Miami, because we have so many, uh, we have this mix of cultures, but we also have a lot of people who are multi generationally mixed and maybe and that's just one way to say it right right, right. <laughs> um, they may not identify as such at, at, at all um uh but they may be uh, a, a lighter skinned brown person uh, like and they uh they may have less of a racialized experience and so they may not be uh overly invested in um a uh, 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 I don't know, like the, the buy-in to, sure. to, and, and I'm, obviously I'm, I, 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 again, I say identi identify as black. Um, I, that's obviously every, every person, because we have, since we constructed race, <laughs> since race was constructed, now we all have races. Um, right. But how you deal with the, the, the body that you move through the world in, that's, you know, I think it's a complex thing. And if, if you are in a community where um, that's not, uh, something that's not a determining factor on your life possibilities, then you probably don't have, you know, as much to say about it as somebody who knows who who every day has to deal with the fact that um, their their opportunities are limited by their their race and, and their racial presentation. Right. Um, and so I think I think there's a lot more nuance in Miami. To get back to your actual question, sure. there's a lot more nuance. Um, versus in a place like where, where, when I first left Miami, I moved to Minneapolis in Minnesota. So this is a, the upper Midwest. And um, it felt like not just to me, but to a lot of people who had been uh, transplants, who'd been move, moving around from the East Coast, the West Coast, from, from Texas, anywhere that was kind of coastal or had a border, um, people moved to this city and, and it seemed like the bar for being somebody who wasn't racialized was much higher. Oh boy! Um, right, like it, it was. So, it became much more of a black white issue. You mean much? Clearer. It was. It was a. It was. It was a black white issue in a in a in a sense, but not in not in literal like black people and white people. Mm. It, I mean, it, it was a place where a lot of my Jewish friends were 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 singled out as who had who had identified as yes Jewish, but they had also identified as white their entire lives. And who were were suddenly told they were not white um, in in this midwest western city, um, or but but it, it it seemed to kind of go beyond that. It was this weird thing where I, I, the way I boil it down is it seemed like a lot of people were just fighting for um, their full humanity. I think is what uh, I like to think of it as. Mm -hmm. I, I, and again, I'm I'm not speaking on these uh, these observations as judgments. Um, 
when it comes to, I mean, I, I had people, I had friends of every race basically tell me that they, they felt um, their whiteness was being stolen from them. And I think it's a, it's a kind of privilege that was being stolen from them. Right. Or, or, or was... People were making attempts at yeah. stealing their privilege, taking their privilege. Um, and, and here's the thing I would say, you know, <laughs> Uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> me and, and I and I do identify as black, but it's like, yes, I understand. Like, because because some of those areas where I, as a you know, a kind of lighter skinned uh, Jamaican in Miami, could 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 even slide through without even thinking about you know, and and, and this is you know, it's so in, much in, more slippery. In certain communities. It's so much right, more slippery in Miami, yeah. Right. Versus right, in Minneapolis, right. which was the heart of the the George Floyd protest, you know, the, the murder of right, George Floyd. Exactly. So like we've, we've pretty, you know, and obviously Miami has its own uh, history, but you know, um, I, I love uh, this conversation and I want to continue with it. Uh, we're talking with John Escoffrey, Jonathan Escoffrey about his debut short story collection. If I survive you, uh, we're going to take a little break and we, we're going to come back and talk with a little bit more about him. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN. I'm Carlos Frias. We've been talking with author Jonathan Escoffrey about growing up in South Florida and how he stays connected to this place through his writing. Uh, his story collection is absurd. It is soulful. And it is at times laugh out loud funny. Um, you know, I, Jonathan, these everybody thinks like I have a crush on you because I haven't been able to stop talking about this book. Uh, I really love it. And um, because of that, I'm going to ask you to read a little passage. Uh, we, we asked uh, you to kind of take a peek at it earlier. Um, and what, I think what I really like about this is that it really starts to discuss how people, that slipperiness that we were talking about in the last segment, where that slipperiness of, of culture and of nationality and of race. So will you, will you read that a little bit for us? Sure, absolutely. When my ninth grade Spanish comes up short, I break down and call El Jefe to come help translate. He, of course, thinks this a monumental waste of his time, but I'm supposed to be helping him with his English, so he'll generally acquiesce. Truthfully, our trade-off is a sham, because dude speaks English about as well as any community, community college grad in Miami-Dade County. Every now and again, he'll disfigure an idiom, saying, for better or for worst, and I'm supposed to correct him. I did at first, but I've begun to believe he goes out of his way to exaggerate his English deficiency to appear foreign or local, depending how you look at it. That's so great because that is such a such a Miami thing that that experience of code switching, right? Like uh, moving between groups, uh, but changing your idioms just a little bit. What was your experience life with like with code switching in Miami? Did you find yourself even? doing that yourself with with different groups of friends yeah um it's i definitely did um and i didn't necessarily think of it as code switching though sure um uh, i mean truth be told so I, I i grew up in this jamaican household where i i was the one i was the family member who did not sound <laughs> quote unquote sound jamaican um, I, and, you know, I, and I think that is, uh, in part because my parents were always working. And so I was, I was 
always put in in daycares and um from a very early age from before i could talk um and uh, the result of that in a sense is that i would uh i would show up in school and um on one hand the teachers would kind of say things like you uh you're very articulate or something whatever version whatever versions of, of that um right. or you know they, they might have been the first ones who are very much asking where are you from like the coded um, language without saying uh exactly. where are you from right and and you do so right. much of that in this book is like like uh you you do call out um you call out miami so much you know like uh you say the quiet parts out loud as the kids say right uh, in this right, book, which right. I think I, which I really enjoy. Yeah. And I mean, so I'm somebody who, or I was a, a kid who, uh, did eventually start to think about how to, again, like construct, um, a self that can be embraced by a group. <laughs> I don't think I necessarily ever put a value system on any group I, I, I would want to fit in. Uh, or, 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 or like looking at like the, the hierarchies of, of different social groups. It was like any group that will take me, please, <laughs> please accept me. And, you know, thinking about which groups I was more likely to be accepted within, I, I, you know, I definitely played with the language and thinking about, well, this is, you know, especially as you start to delve deep into a certain kind of um, culture via things like music, um, uh, that's where the code switching, I think, started to started to come in. And it was more like kind of playing with language that mm -hmm. then you start to internalize it to the point where it is just your your language that you you use some of the time. Um, right. I, there would definitely be a very strong like code switching from like my school language. And then in the house, there was none of none of that that couldn't I couldn't bring that language back into my house. Oh, that's interesting. Why would, would your parents call you on it or it just it just felt like yeah. it felt like a natural? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think probably a, a little of both at first. And then once it became natural, my, my parents were. And, and this will be probably most like Jamaican households, especially if at the time the family left Jamaica, they were middle class, even if they're not middle class anymore um, as a result of of, of leaving, uh, migrating to. Right. Exactly. Um, there's it's like I, I could have shown up with the, you know, if I were able to actually uh, affect uh, a believable Jamaican accent, that would be acceptable or <laughs> that kind of um I don't know more what's thought of as a, a more standardized English that is, you know, in my middle school, I was told I talk white. So oh, yeah. I, I, but the, the, the talking white was allowed in, in the household still, even if it was kind of made fun of as well. Oh, that's funny. Um, it reminds me of yeah. that, that I heard you read um, a piece of influx uh, during a, a launch of your book or a presentation here in Miami. And you get to this section where you talk, in with like a like I guess you could say a Jamaican accent, you know, and it's and like everybody who was Jamaican in the crowd was just rolling laughing, you know. Um, <laughs> so I was just hearing, you know, just hearing that in you, you know, talking. Yeah. And of course, you you play you play with that as a Jamaican American kid as well. And then some people, you know, do it better than others. Uh, <laughs> I, I make fun of myself. I, I, you know, in no world do I believe I, I'm I'm great at it, but. Could do a little bit. Yeah, that's okay. I, I, you know what? I don't say Dali and Bro all the time either. So it's uh, there's a code switch there. <laughs> you know, we were talking about um, this passage, and I asked you to break, but there's it actually continues, and I want to talk 
about it a little, if you don't mind reading just this next section of the book. It, it continues on from what you first read, but I think it really encapsulates so much of what you write about in the book, which is race, colorism, nationalism. So, uh, Jonathan, would you mind reading that, that next little section? Absolutely. Over the course of a year, El Jefe's English has deteriorated rapidly, a political move to gain influence with the Cuban community's older generation, I suspect. He insists he belongs to this community, but he's admitted, too, that his almond skin, his full lips, his two round nose, and his tight curls are viewed among many of his brethren with distrust and contempt. El es Dominicano, I've heard about a dozen of our Cuban residents ask him. When they ask, I see the hurt drowning the corners of his eyes. Oh, I should add that my uh, Spanish accent isn't much better than my uh, Jamaican accent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is, uh, this is uh, the story, Independent Living, from the book, If I Survive You. And, we, and we're talking with uh, Jonathan Escoffrey uh, about his book. Um, Jonathan, tell me about that that passage a little bit uh, just again about what we were talking about like what is that what does that that section mean to you yeah i mean this section and, and some others in the book is it's really about um the way in which people try to guard um their i mean there's, there's two sides of sides of it so this is this is the building manager of this um this property where he, in a sense, is the, the face of power. Um, mm. And what he wants is to, he wants to fit in within the the, the Cuban community. Um, and there's constantly these people who are trying to, uh, and, and, and when I say he wants to fit in, I mean, that is his community. But because of the way he presents, um, again, the, the phenotypical traits, sure. the skin color, mm -hmm. people are trying to deny him that, that acceptance within his own community. And, and that for me is like a mirror image of what's going on with Chelani and what's going on with so many of these other characters who are feeling excluded from what should be, you know, naturally, um, the communities that, that they would belong to. Um, and, you know, there, there are other parts in the book where it, it's, it's breaking down, um, our, our kind of ideas about, uh, about race and, and belonging in terms of, um, there's, there's one part where Trelawney takes up a job where, uh, the job posting says, you know, I want you to do a really weird thing, but just don't show up being black. No black guys allowed. And, <laughs> and Chelani's like, well, I'm desperate. I'm literally starving. I'm showing up anyway. And and he's allowed to, you know, do the job because, you know, it's like as long as you don't check that that box, he's racially ambiguous enough that he he's allowed in, in this person's house. And that character, that other character tells a story about how her um, the reason she didn't want a black guy to show up and, and come in the house is because it's against her parents' rules. And there was um, an incident when her sister brought a black boy home for a play date. Her, their father wound up beating her sister up because no black guys can come in the house. But it turned out that the black boy wasn't actually black after all. He was South Asian. <laughs> and it was more like this idea of blackness um, that, that, you know, <laughs> that riled really them. The thing 
Right, that riled them up. And Chilani's like, you know, so many white women have told me this exact same story. And she's saying, what are you talking about? I'm not even white. And it's th- like the idea is just that, you know, <laughs> we're, I, I don't think we have a, as firm a grasp on race as we often pretend we do. Mm, that's so true, man. That is such a, yeah, yeah, that is such a, a, a poignant thing, especially, you know, like you said, as you move throughout the country and people have, different opinions about how is it's how it's expressed um right you know i'm thinking about the success this book has had um and i remember uh, my own dad my late dad he always kept a copy of my book in a ziploc bag <laughs> he couldn't read it because it was in english um but he carried it around with him and he would show people and i'm wondering um how your parents received this book i know your your father died before it was ultimately published but can you just tell me a little bit about it because they you know, about how they received it as you were, as you were getting close to publication. Yeah. Um, my, my dad had had a, a stroke and I, I don't think he was reading very well by the time I was able to uh, hand him a copy of the, I, I, it wasn't the final version, but it was the arc that, you know, looked pretty, pretty much like the final version. The, and, the advanced reader copy. Right. Exactly. Right. Thank you. And, um, you know, at, at first he <laughs> he kind of glanced at it for a moment and then told me to put it out in the living room um, with the, the other book that was in the living room uh, on the coffee table, which which happened to be uh, Michelle Obama's memoir. Oh wow! Um, and he, you know, I remember thinking like, "Wow, this is a really disappointing <laughs> experience that oh. I I had been looking forward to for a really long time." But at one point, this is over the summer, and, and he died at the end of summer. And you know, he was he it was it was very clear that he was kind of on his way out. Um, but we were in the hospital, and he was having a moment where he was a, a bit uh, clearer, and he was like, you know, I really hope that I'm able to, you know, make it long enough that I can that I can read this book, read your book. And it was out of nowhere. I had I you know I never brought it up again um, throughout the summer. And he was he was just telling me like how much he wants to to read it. Um, my father was not a very big fi- reader of fiction, mm. and so he was a big, very big reader of newspapers. Um, he read the Herald so, every day, know, right? He did. He did, absolutely did. And he, uh, I, I think, if he'd had another hundred years, he still may not have read the book. <laughs> but but to me, like that's that's like the less important thing. Yeah. Um, I also, you know, my and my mother, who's she's the proudest person in the world of of how things are going um, uh, with the book. She's my biggest cheerleader. I still don't know if she's read the book, and I I, I really. I, I don't pressure my family to to read the book at all, but I, I do appreciate when they are excited for me when when good things happen and when the um, book gets good media attention, especially when it's attention that they can actually recognize and it's less on the literary side and maybe more on the um, I don't know pop culture side mm-hmm. uh, because those are the things that actually they can connect with that and they're like oh wow people <laughs> people seem to actually like your book <laughs> and that's really great to experience uh, yeah I, I had a similar experience with my with my own mom who like she read parts of it and parts of it you know or, or talked about their personal history so it, she's like it got too sad and and I had to stop but you know you kind of uh, you know I, you you're you're happy that they were able to experience its, its existence. Can I ask you about a moment right. when you realized that the book had grown wings? Like that it really, like the moment where you realized 
like, oh my God, this book is, I it's more than the people in my house are interested in it. <laughs> yeah, well, for, you know, I should say, like, I have usually been the only person in my house who's ever interested in it. <laughs> um, they, I think the outside world took, took interest in it long before anyone um, else in, in my household or family would. But um, just, and again, that comes back to just kind of understanding what, what it is you're doing. Uh, I, uh, that's such a hard question because I, I think there are just <laughs> levels to it in a sense. Um, I, when I wrote the story under the Aki tree, uh, which I, I think I completed in, the, or it was very, very close to being um, in in publication shape in 2018. I remember taking that to um, a conference, Bread Love Conference, in, which takes place in the summers in Vermont. And uh, I was in a workshop and the workshop leader is an author that I really, really admire um uh matt johnson i, I should say he's like uh, one of the funniest writers uh he writes humor just brilliantly um and he he walked up to me in the i was doing the work study um scholarship and i was in the meaning i was working the kitchen and i was i was serving my my the rest of the conference along with my my other fellowship cohort and he walked up to me and and this is before my workshop and he shook my hand and he said you you wrote a brilliant story wow. and um I, I just remember, like, I, I don't know, I just felt like I, I it, you shouldn't depend on external, um, you know, uh, validation. And yet I felt like, I don't know, I leveled up somehow. <laughs> and I remember going back to my room after and rereading the story and uh, just kind of like feeling really uh, emotional about it, but also knowing like, okay, we're, we, we've got this. And I knew that that was going to be a big part of the book. Our guest today was Jonathan Escoffrey, and his new book is If I Survive You, which was nominated for a National Book Award. If you missed any part of our conversation, all Sundial episodes are available on our podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, December 20th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Our engagement editor is Katie Lepre-Cohen. Our digital editor is Mateo Sanchez. Katie Munoz is our interim managing editor. Our senior news editor is Jessica Bakeman. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's vice president of radio and Sundial's engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program... Jacqueline Charles, the Miami Herald reporter who President Bill Clinton called Haiti's ambassador to the world. We'll ask her about her unique background, being born in Turks and Caicos, raised by her Haitian immigrant mom, a Cuban-American stepdad, and how growing up in Overtown all shaped her. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.